Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who's leading the change? What are the key skills to learn? And how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0? In episode 52 of the podcast, the topic is unplanned downtime. Our guest is Simon Kampa, CEO and co-founder of Sensei. In this conversation, we talk about Sensei's report, The True Cost of Downtime, investigating the impact of machine failure and unplanned downtime at the world's largest manufacturers. We also discuss the coming consolidation of the industry due to technology maturity and customer preference for simplicity, quality and scale. We briefly discuss the need for industrial interoperability in order to achieve the impact the industry desires. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by Futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Augmented. The Industry 4.0 Podcast. Simon, how are you today? Good morning, Trond. Um, I'm very well, thank you. I'm excited to talk about the, the report you got out, uh, which had some striking findings. But right before we get to that, Simon, you're an interesting guy. You've got a PhD in the semantic web from the University of Southampton, and you have been straddling, I guess, uh, you know, the IT world and uh, the manufacturing world. And then I, I see that we share a background at the International Baccalaureate too. So very exciting there. That's interesting. I, I don't hear many people who've also done International Baccalaureate. Um, but yeah, I guess my career the whole way through has always had, is always involved data and, and, and exploiting data. And it's, it's generally also involved the industrial sector, whether it be aerospace, transport or, uh, you know, more traditional manufacturing. Yeah. And, and then w w you went straight out of university and started your company? Uh, no, I didn't. I guess I didn't have the guts to do it quite then. So I had a more traditional route out of, uh, out of university. So I did you know, my bachelor and my PhD. Uh, and then I joined um, a defense company called Lockheed Martin um, and did probably about 10 years within the aerospace defense sector um, um, and then moved into management consultancy uh, and then back into aerospace um, and then eventually set up Sensei seven, seven years ago. Um, but what we, where I learned my trade in terms of predictive maintenance and certainly the co-founders that I, uh, that I asked to join on the, on the Sensei journey, um, our, our back has always been in pretty much in aerospace and, doing predictive maintenance in that sector. It, we didn't call it predictive maintenance then. That's more of a, a term that's been coined maybe th three to five years ago. Um, but we did essentially predictive maintenance in aerospace for the last sort of 20 years, um, learned our trade there, but then had the idea of, well, these systems are great in aerospace, but they're incredibly expensive and very sort of niche. Um, so why don't we take that deep domain experience, combine it with, You know, back in 2014, AI technology, IoT technology was sort of coming on, on stream. Take that technology and develop a solution that is scalable, if you like, so we can go into a factory with 3,000 machines and offer them a you know automated, cost-effective solution. Hmm. 
And and how's that going? What's the response uh, in 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 industry to this sort of service? Well, it's an interesting one. So, aerospace, oil, and gas—they get it. They've been doing this for twenty years because they've got very high capex equipment. The rest of sectors, um, there is some education needed. And if I compare the, the the market maturity today versus back in twenty fourteen, it's like night and day. Um, back in those days, 2014, 2015, most people knew they wanted to reduce the unplanned downtime, but they had absolutely no idea on on the prerequisites to do that in terms of getting access to machine data and things. And that's thankfully changed, you know, 180 degrees nearly um, in, by 2021. Um, and, you know, the market now is is, is grabbing for predictive maintenance. Probably the, uh, it's the darling of, uh, you know, industry 4.0. Uh, and there's a lot of vendors out there with different and interesting solutions um, that, are, that are offering these uh, this capability to you know the previously unserved market. So let's jump straight into it then, because uh, your uh, new report, the true cost of downtime, has some very interesting findings, and they're, they're pretty significant, it would seem, at at face value. Can you just line up some of the? Uh, quantitative findings and also give us a sense of how this report was was created yeah so the raw data or the most of the raw data for the report came um, or comes from our roi calculator which we have on our website www.sensei.io we'll have a look at it Um, and it's a it's an interactive uh, form that you fill in um, uh, about your giving your industry sector your role in the business the amount of downtime you have your oe um, your cost of downtime, all those things. Um, and we've been collecting that for, for two years now. And that's given us a huge wealth of um, raw data to draw on. Um, and we focused particularly on 72 Fortune 500s that completed the, uh, the survey, if you like. Uh, and out of that, then you can build a picture of what the cost of downtime is across industry and within certain sectors like you know, metals mining or oil and gas. Um, and then you can also obviously extrapolate that you know, to all other Fortune 500 businesses. And if you look at the top end, I mean, we've got some nice detailed numbers as well. But if you look at the top end, what is the big picture? It's the, the cost of downtime across Fortune 500s is getting close to a trillion dollars per year. And if you then if you then divide that by revenue and things, you're actually looking at lost revenue of around 8% per, per business. And that's just a striking number if you can think the, the amount of waste that we are that we're currently, or inefficiencies that we're currently driving in these businesses. And obviously a big topic at the moment is sustainability. And if you can take this uh, waste out of the out of the, uh, the business, not only are you reducing your own cost or increasing your revenue, you're actually you know, using less equipment, less uh, manufacturing sites to produce the goods, thereby being more sustainable as well. Yeah, I, I actually feel very optimistic around these figures. It's actually very encouraging that there that you fairly easily could identify these things now presuming that their numbers are are correct it's a it's actually you could see it as an optimistic finding for the industry because if you have identified where you where you think you can make up these uh these gains in in downtime how how realistic is it do you think for a fortune uh 500 to make some headway here on on unplanned downtime how how hard or how easy is it to to address this shortcoming? Um, you know, it, it's hard, right? It's hard, and and our target market is almost exclusively Fortune five hundreds, um, and the reason we we focus on on those businesses is because we learned very quickly in our journey at Sensei 
that while probably 90% of companies have expressed a strong interest in doing predictive maintenance to become more efficient, probably 10% have the wherewithal to make it happen in terms of connecting the data, sending the data to you, having the vision, having the budgets to do this. So, um, And certainly over the last sort of three years, we've really seen the Fortune 500s all pick it up. I, I, I suspect there isn't a single Fortune 500 manufacturer who is not at least starting proof of values, proof of concepts within the predictive maintenance space. But where it really gets difficult, and this is where you know Gartner and, and Forrester produced numbers like I think two in three industry 4.0 projects can haven't scaled and or cannot scale. And, and that's the issue. You're doing predictive maintenance on a few machines, doing it maybe even across our line, that's one challenge, um, and that's good. But to really start addressing these high numbers, you need to get full plant coverage. You need to cover the entire plant and all their plants, and that's where it gets difficult. And that's our sweet spot. You know, Sensei is around all about scalability, trying to provide predictive maintenance, not just on some critical assets, but doing it across two, three, four thousand assets machines on a site. And once you can do that, then you've uh, then you can start addressing these big numbers. But we're still, I think, we're still some way away from from getting that kind of coverage. One of the things that is happening, I guess, in this industry uh, is that the number of suppliers are increasing because a lot of startups like yours are yeah. moving into the space with, you know, presumably advanced solutions. But you're throwing a wrench a little bit into this very traditional industry that, you know, was guided by analysts who were, you know, pointing to these very, very few suppliers, uh, you know, uh, and vendors that could supply uh, you know, products, uh, you, you know, in terms of quality and or, or it was, you know, obviously based on sort of quality work just internally in, in, in the factory based on sort of legacy systems. What is your thinking on um, what's happening now with Industry 4.0? There's a lot more players, clearly a lot more advanced technology, but still this enormous challenge. So if you are a Fortune 500, you you have legacy technology, you're trying to figure out which of these startups should I go with or, you know, does any of my traditional vendors, have they kind of gotten the picture and can they also deliver some of these value uh, creation um, savings? Um, can you see it from, from industry's point of view as well? It's not super easy to know where am I going to now yeah, no, put my energies. It, it's really difficult. And, you know, back, you know, back in 2014, predictive maintenance didn't exist as a term. Um, let alone many competitors or vendors, and now you know there's probably a few hundred doing it. I mean, I would almost you could, you could almost say anybody who's uh, who's you know got a computer and got a software services business is probably saying we can do predictive maintenance. Um, you you do need to you know dig dig through that and uh, and sort of surface who are the the genuine players and who are just doing it as a another service that they uh, they feel they can add to their portfolio of services. I mean, we, if I ask my customers or, or prospects what they like about Sensei, it's because we've got that. We're not another you know IT company. We're an engineering business. We have a background in aerospace and engineering. CTO is a mechanical engineer. A third of the uh, employees at the business are condition monitoring, diagnostic engineers, so we can really understand um, the problem. But... Um, 95% of the vendors out there have the same approach to, to this problem. You know, they, they have hired a nice team of data scientists. They connect to a customer who's, 
who wants to try predictive maintenance on, on a handful of machines, they do that. They custom develop some models and some and apply some algorithms to those to uh, to prove its predictive capability. But then where but then where they fall over then is right, that's great. Now can you do that for our two and a half thousand diverse machines in our factory? And suddenly the sort of pure data science approach um, is very hard to scale because you for each machine you would have to develop a bespoke approach model, etc., to uh, to be able to forecast it. So those businesses that I think have done well in this space, and I would include Sensei in that, they've either um, they've all negated the need for manual model building, right? They've either done that by um, owning the, the the sensor stack as well, like um, Augury, you know, somebody that we 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 consider a peer, um, and and they kind of own the whole sensor to to software stack, so they can control the data flow, uh, which means they can be, do things in a much more automated way. Um, we've chosen not to go the sensor route. It has positives, but it also has negatives in that you're, you're locking a vendor into the full stack. Um, but we've managed to automate our approach um, using you know, a variety of proprietary frameworks and models and algorithms that can do predictive maintenance in a turnkey automated way. So if we, when we connect to a factory with a few hundred or thousand machines, there's no effort required for us to deploy. We don't need to hire a team of data scientists or consultants or anybody else to actually configure the system and and and, uh, and therefore increase the cost so much. So the winners are there, the ones that have somehow managed to automate it and thereby charge a price that makes sense to these industries. Well, that, you know, you're bringing up a lot of different points here, but uh, the software engineers who now have to really dig into uh, the engineering and operations side. I mean, traditionally, these are sort of two two types of approaches, right? The IT versus OT operations, you know, is an engineering discipline and software is software, right? That That's the, yeah. at least the traditional distinction. How are, how are you, uh, so you're straddling yourself both worlds. Yeah. But uh, e- even in terms of running a business that that has this additional complexity, do you have to retrain your engineers then, or your software guys that come in to to really handle the physical world, or do you find that uh, young people now are educated more with this material uh, background, or they have see- seen physical systems uh, and and can that more naturally integrate this, or is this just a daily struggle? No, I wouldn't say it's just been I mean, a struggle for us. I, I, essentially, I guess we have two disciplines in the business. We have OT people who are the yep. monitoring people and they, they work in our customer success teams and our pre-sales teams. Um, and then the software engineers are, uh, you know, tucked away in a dark room developing the product. Um, and, but when, when, when they need to talk to a, to a, to a customer, then they'll, they'll do that. And what we've noticed is in the early days and even today for initial POCs and things, it's the OT people that uh, we engage with, and they end up buying buying the service. As you then look to scale, um, increasingly IT is coming in and, and owning the, uh, the space and taking it away from OT in, in some ways. And those times, yeah, our IT side needs to come in much more, and we've had to sort of pivot our products a little bit to better cater for the needs of an IT buyer versus an OT buyer. They're very different buyers. Um, so we've certainly noticed that shift. In, in buying habits from you know OT to IT, but you know I feel that we've mm. got the teams on both sides to to deal with uh, the questioning and requirements from either team. 
You know, another related issue uh, in the industry is this idea that uh, some of these systems should become easier. And, you know, um, traditionally legacy systems, whether they were, you know, counting or or coming in and giving sort of consulting advice and adding on top of, of existing systems, either way, you know, there has always been this need for systems integrators. Now there are some newer stacks that have le- less of a need for for very sort of complicated specialist knowledge to come in. Where where do you find yourselves on you know on that scale? And and what do you think overall? You know, wh- where is the industry heading? Are we heading towards increasingly specialists that are dealing with the data analytics side of of operating factories, or are we uh, kind of back to a situation where the big Vendors or really any anybody who runs factory operations should be able to deal and understand the the systems that they have put in place on their own sites. Yeah, I mean from the from the NSI side, I mean Sensei in itself is quite an easy product to deploy. Um, but most Fortune five hundreds, you know, predictive maintenance is just one of the capabilities that's part of their digital um, vision and their fabric. So the SIs normally would would run the entire digital transformation program and get all the data into a data lake or data platform. Um, and um, and you know, then they would have a shopping basket of various applications, apps to, to add into that, uh, into, into that digital architecture. And then they might choose Sensei for predictive maintenance. They might choose another company for the maintenance management system, another company for you know, spares optimization. Um, so it's, you know, and SIs are absolutely key for that, and I can see that they're all moving into this space and uh, and supporting this. And there's much more pickup now from um, from customers in embracing digital transformation. So we're just a module, and that's why we've kind of changed, if you like, our whole product roadmap and positioning to be that we're you know we're just part of a journey. We offer a very key part, we think, but we're just part of the journey of of making your factories smart and more efficient. Um, and we plug in in a certain place, and then you'll have lots of other good apps to add to provide other um, capabilities and functionalities. Um, yeah. So, to um, further to that, you know, predictive maintenance is you know is one part of Industry 4.0. If you look at that that wider term and the wider changes that are needed to truly realize the quite revolutionary vision of industry 4.0 where where are we heading there in the next few years i mean is predictive maintenance so that that is like you said it's one of the crucial uh points that uh, all companies should should embrace in order to achieve some of the savings that you were just pointing out from from your survey but on the wider uh you know if you widen out the the angle where where is the factory world sort of heading where is production heading what are some of the things that are coming uh, becoming more realistic now that uh, you perhaps are engaging with with a, a wider sort of panoply of industry for technologies where where, where where are we headed well first off i think in the next sort of three to five years there's going to be an awful lot of m a activity as the market consolidates there's just too many players and, and that, you know, as we talked about a bit earlier, that in itself causes friction and slows the market down because it's just confusion. And, you know, this, we've come across a number of businesses who want to do predictive maintenance or other industry for projects. But they say, look, we've done three pilots, they've all failed. Um, and, you know what, we're just going to park this topic for a bit. 
because we don't feel believe the market is mature enough. Um, and we're coming across that more and more. There is a lot of failure out there, which is dampening the spirit a little bit um, because of all these vendors. Some are good, some are not so good, some are experts, some uh, have no knowledge of the OT side, really, which is missing. So I think the market needs to consolidate itself a little bit and the key players need to come out and uh, and, and perform. Uh, but clearly the vision of you know Industry 4 and a smart factory is so much more than where we are at the moment. I don't think people are need beginning to get to grasp with what is the real potential where you know if you look at predictive maintenance okay that that increases your availability and your production output but you know what you then want to do is be able to link that to your spares ordering system so you have just-in-time spares and you don't keep stock of too many parts so you can kind of you know buy the part when you can see it failing in six weeks time you can kind of schedule the part thing is you want to optimize your maintenance scheduling for example so you don't grease a motor every six weeks because that's what the OEM says, but you do it based on condition and then you can order the lubricant in accordingly. Um, you know, you, you want to obviously, you know, run very efficient maintenance regimes with as few people as possible. You know, ultimately you, you, you want to get these to consequential of dark factories and things where things are just being made with very little, little interaction and, and that sort of efficiency is, Gosh, that's got to be a number of years away still. But that, that's where your potential is. You know, what we're seeing at the moment are just little nuggets of, of good examples and exciting examples. But the vision, I think, is still five, ten years away, really. Well, it's interesting you said that. I mean, the entire term of predictive maintenance, right, is kind of, it assumes that downtime is... Uh, almost like an inevitability and you're trying to reduce it, but but there's downtime because there are these enormous machines that have to kind of w- work in in synchrony. But isn't the entire vision of of wh- why that has to happen, wouldn't that also uh, be changing if, if we are uh, adjusting and the machines that we're now deploying are are not these mastodontic machines that all are, one machine will stop the rest? I mean, is, aren't we moving into an environment ideally where uh, where there's not one, and the factory isn't just, you know, it's just not one assembly line that will either stop or not. I mean, am I wrong in thinking that the contemporary factory doesn't consist of one, you know, there's not one failure point, or is that partly what you're trying to address with uh, with your interventions? Well, I think it, it, in different factories, it's, it's different. You're right, I mean, most, for most situations a single failure will not bring down the whole site unless of course it, that single failure lasts for uh, maybe a few hours and things i mean there will be some exceptions obviously if a if a drill pump's going on an oil rig you know that's that's the rig down for a bit but in most other situations you've got buffers between lines or or you know, they're actually you know independent units so the downtime may not be as uh, as great as it once was but it's still a big factor in most most mm. most factories Sam, can you speak a little bit to sort of sector-specific challenges? Because you mentioned that your background, you know, obviously the s- strong background in in uh, uh, you know aerospace and with Lockheed and, and things, and and that is a sector which many would have considered uh, not slow moving, but you know, very professional, but going at its own pace, just because there are all these security concerns, and you know, clearly an industry with a lot of investment over time by some very few enormous players now. There's uh, 
new space, right? There's this new excitement around, uh, you, you know, going into orbit and things. And they're obviously the promise of all these new technologies. Are you getting the sense that each sort of vertical sector now has, uh, you know, it's like taking taking off, pardon the metaphor, you know, in different in uh, at different speeds, and you know maybe you can address aerospace versus some of these other sectors that you're also delivering uh, maintenance pr- products to. What, what's what's happening in, in in the wider manufacturing space? Are we kind of splitting out and have to really consider them sort of separate challenges, or is Industry 4.0 doing the opposite and turning everything into just one? Industry four machine. No, I, I, I think your your first statement is correct. Each industry is is so different. And if you look at aerospace, they, they've they didn't call it predictive maintenance, but they've done it. They've they've done it. Right? Yeah. And uh, they've not only have they done predictive maintenance. I mean, obviously they did it because of safety concerns. So it's a very strong driver, and ROI is is more palatable in those sectors because of the high cost of equipment. But what they've actually done is um, because they have technology like that, the buyers of the equipment can actually ask the providers of the equipment to servitize their product. So, you know, airlines don't buy, as we know, I think every most of us know now, don't buy jet engines. They lease them. They lease X hundred or thousand hours of flying time from, you know, Rolls-Royce and, and, uh, and GE, et cetera. And once you do that, then the the onus of making sure that that, that piece of equipment is, is maintenance Efficiently maintained efficiently and and doesn't break down. That all all of a sudden goes on to, onto an OEM, right? The manufacturer. So suddenly they want predictive maintenance products, and that then drives the adoption of data technologies even even further. Um, and and you can see that whole cycle of servitization happening slowly in other sectors as well um, for big machines, maybe like stamping presses potentially. But um, generally, if I look at the sectors, the ones that are most mature is oil and gas transport and um, aerospace, because they've been doing it for the longest. Um, the least mature um, in terms of experience and therefore needing the most sort of education is probably, in for us and in our experience anyway, is fast-moving consumer goods, um, where their technology maturity is quite low, although they've all engaged generally on digital transformation programs now. But also the business case for them is, is harder to quantify with airlines and oil and gas very easy to say you know, if, if oil rig goes down this is how many hundred thousand dollars it costs me per hour um for for food and bev and you know fmcg cpg uh that number isn't as high and actually the savings they want to make are more in reducing maintenance activities and optimizing um spares and things like that so it's a much harder business case to present and that then pushes big prices down so you kind of got a double whammy of Technically not very mature, plus very, and, and so you need to kind of charge them more to be able to overcome that. But then you've got the uh, the business case not justifying charging them as much. So that's probably our most challenging sector, although it's also quite a successful sector for us. Um, but the sectors where we where it's probably a good balance of the need is very clear, the business case is very strong, um, and they have you know the, the vision to do that is metals and mining and automotive. We find those sectors probably the uh, the most fruitful for us. Simon, I want to bring you back to your PhD in a sense because interoperability uh, is a you know in the IT sector it has been the defining, uh, arguably you know the defining principle that has governed whether things are going fast or or s- slow when it comes to integrating new technologies across 
across the the sector itself because you know clearly in in every vendor's interest there's some amount of capture of of value where you can kind of hold hold or lock in the client a little bit over time so that you can obviously milk milk that asset um i'm wondering how that translates into the industrial sector where you know presumably you, you know in aerospace you were talking about ge and and you know and engine large enormous engines clearly the producer of those engines would want to own the service chain themselves and it would make sense that they uh, make every attempt to do that but on the other hand they clearly need to interact with smaller systems so they can't just sit there on their own islands um, the last decade has you know l- like you pointed out a lot of startups have come into the space and have started to operate on top of those systems with some amount of interoperability where, where, where do you see this moving are we moving in uh, towards more interoperability, or is there more lock-in because these larger players want to get their value out of their machinery, and like you said, they're they're leasing them and they're controlling the service chain. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think we've probably seen both. Clearly, the 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 you know, the idealistic view and the vision for Industry 4.0 was to break down those silos and you know have a sort of app ecosystem of functionality from best of breed vendors to uh, to do that. But we are seeing that some of the traditional you know, manufacturing businesses, OEMs, either they're trying to um, lock their products, so it's very hard to get data out of them because they don't want you to get sensor data out of their maybe their robot because they only want them themselves to to have access to that data. Because you know, we as a company, because we monitor so many machines, we in some cases we probably know more about the reliability and failure modes of their machines than the manufacturer does. And that's obviously scares manufacturers um, from a business driver perspective. Um, but at the same time, we see a lot of Fortune 500s turning to the smaller players and startups for their solution and shunning the um, you know the uh, their traditional suppliers who, you know, let's face it, some of them have had, they've not had a great uh, track record with uh, with some of these IoT technologies, look at G and Predix and you know Siemens and Mindsphere. You know they've 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 tried to to develop solutions and they've ended up being quite big and clunky and not really appropriate for for um, Industry 4.0 um, journey. So it's yeah, it's uh, it's a talk. I'd like I'm going to be an optimist, right? Um, I'm say it's going to be uh, it's going to open up um, silos more and there'll be more interoperability. Um, I think that's just the way it has to be. I can't see Industry 4.0 succeeding with one vendor owning that entire space for a company. Well, I, I want to believe you, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think that I've seen interoperability play out in, in, in different sectors and uh, it goes a little bit in waves, doesn't it, right? It, you know, you you're sort of, uh, it can go towards more openness, but then there's something happens in the, in the industry that, that either, you know, allows a, a, a set of vendors to sort of make a grab or not. But are you actively involved in the standardization of some of these interfaces and how's that, how's that going? It's interesting, you're yeah, just thinking the same thing, um, how actually in, within the industry for, space um, obviously at the hardware level there's lots of standards but above that there really is a dearth of standards out there um, there's a few we we are, we um, adhere to a standard called senml which is like a sensor metadata language to uh, standardize how sensor data is exchanged um, but otherwise 
you know, we, we don't follow, I mean, there aren't any really, uh, any really uh, you know, certified standards out there um, for at least in the predictive maintenance space that we could use. And most software is technically open, you know, so you have an open API with the REST interface and you exchange JSON data. So you can technically get the data out and read it. But the structure and format of that data, you know, it's, it's every vendor seems to be doing their own thing at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting environment. I'm I'm so glad that you came on to to explain what uh, you guys have been up to. I wanted just towards the end here, just maybe you could restate some of the some of the findings of this true uh, cost of downtown. So we we talked about taking maybe near a trillion dollars uh, of uh, of hit, you know, in the in the, among the leading Fortune 500s just because of unplanned downtime. Uh, can you restate some of the uh, how that translates into things like production time and and other things, and uh, you know give us sort of just the headline of yeah. the report again. So in terms of so we talked about nearly trillion dollars in in total sort of lost production. If you bring that down to to a factory level, we're looking at on average twenty five major incidents a month um, per sort of facility per site. Major incidents is normally something over. Well, it's something at a meaningful level, so it's normally over 10 minutes or 30 minutes. Uh, and that equates to about 27 hours per month of unplanned downtime, which you know, is, is a day, right? It's a whole day of production per month that you, you lose. Um, across industries, and just these are some interesting stats, which kind of plain what I said earlier about how FMCG is sometimes a harder business case purely from a downtime perspective. If I look at an average hour's unplanned downtime, the cost of that for a site, in automotive, you're looking at around $1.3 million. Oil and gas, you know, it's a quarter of a million. Heavy industry, you know, metals mining, also around a quarter of a million. But then you look at FMCG, CPG, it's down at $24,000, which is small, right? That's small um, compared to those. And that just makes the business case for those sectors a little bit harder to uh, to justify. And that's probably also why, if you look at where the play is operating, Probably 90% of PDM predict maintenance companies are operating in oil and gas and heavy industry. Uh, very few in the other sectors because it's just so much harder to to make your product work for their business case. Interesting. Well, Simon, this has been fascinating. The true cost of downtime certainly seems to be a very, very significant financial and technological as well issue it's a it's a complex issue that that won't go away and there there certainly is a need to to act on it i thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining this to us no thank you Trond. i really enjoyed that thank you you have just listened to episode 52 of the augmented podcast with host Trond arne unheim the topic was unplanned downtime and our guest was simon campa ceo and co-founder of sensei In this conversation, we talked about Sensei's report, The True Cost of Downtime. My takeaway is that the true cost of downtime in manufacturing is enormous. Interrupting factory production is the last thing you want, yet it's the most common response to anomalies in the production process. Does it have to be that way? Real-time analytics carries the promise of predictive maintenance, which can be carried out in down cycles or certainly more opportunistically. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode eight, Productizing Quality, episode 42, Business Beyond, Buzzwords, and episode 19, Machine Learning in Manufacturing. Here's a clip from my honest chat with 
Jeff Immelt in episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords. Yeah, so um, look, my dad worked for GE. I worked for GE for 35 years. I, I love the company and I love the people I work with. And I did my best every day. Yet with all that, there are some people that blame me for a lot of things associated with the company. And so that's heartbreaking, right? That's, that's, that's heartbreaking. But I'm not the only person that's gone through stuff like that. And the decision you have to make is, are you just going to keep, are you going to quit and just go into hiding? Or are you going to keep on trying, right? And so I kept trying. I kept trying to add value. I kept trying to help people like Max and the time. Uh, and, and I think that's the message. The message is sometimes Despite best intentions, intentions, things don't work the way you want them to. But you just can't quit. You, 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 you can't quit. You got to keep trying and, and find new avenues to add value. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. And we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.